When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. How much more stress can these markets handle? Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, April 26, 2023. I'm Ash Bennington. I'm joined today by Jason Trennert, Chairman of Strategus. Welcome, Jason. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I was about to say welcome back. You've been on many times. You're one of our favorite guests. Our audience always appreciates your insight. Jason, I want to lead off with a quote because I think it's so powerful from an investment strategy note from your shop, Strategic Securities. This is from Monday, April 24, 2023. With the sheer amount of fiscal and monetary meddling in the economy during the pandemic, it would seem that almost anything is possible. We were just talking about this online, uh, offline, what a difference 48 hours can make. Jason, where are we right now? What does it all mean? Yeah, that, that was actually a disclaimer uh, before I gave my opinion. <laughs> to to, to uh, inoculate myself uh, in case I was wrong, because I'm I have to say I'm uh, very cautious about the markets and and worried uh, about the economy. Uh, but uh, you know it's when you um, when there are no rules, uh, anything can happen. And this has been a broken play really since the GFC, but particularly since the pandemic. But um, my own opinion is that whatever you thought one would have thought the, the odds of recession were before the regional banking crisis started in earnest with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature that um, they have to be considered higher now. And um, so I, in, in my opinion, we, we're just in the, the early innings uh, of what's gonna be a, uh, some tough sledding for both the markets and the economy. Yeah, and it's interesting because the intermediating factor here, the question that we're all thinking about here today uh, is the question of the role that the banking system is going to play in this as a as a transmission mechanism or potential trans mechanism, uh, transition mechanism. Uh, I should say, obviously, the big news of the day is what's happening over at First Republic uh, FRC. If we could bring up that chart, I just wanted to show our viewers this. We're off almost about 30% here uh, on the day. Five-day chart we're off nearly 60%. And when we look on a year-to-date basis, First Republic Bank off 95 plus percent year-to-date. These are very big moves. Uh, obviously, this is a story uh, that's a question in itself about what's going to happen to First Republic, but also the broader question about what is happening to the regional banking system here in the United States and its implications for the broader macroeconomic perspective. Jason, what are your thoughts? Well, um, First Republic is actually a client of ours. So I'm going to, I'm going to, um, refrain from talking about them specifically, but I think, listen, I think their issues are, are issues of a lot of other uh, banks, not all of them, but uh, if you look at Silicon Valley Bank and perhaps um, First Republic, they have certain things in common. Um, but uh, as I said before, 
if you look at one of the things we look at very closely is the, the Fed senior loan officer survey, which asks banks, are they more or less willing to make loans? Um, that um, we're going to get a, a, a fresh figure for that in two weeks, but the latest figure showed a pretty big increase in banks' um, unwillingness to make loans. That generally has a pretty strong correlation with job losses and, and corporate profits. And so uh, I can only imagine that it's worse now than, than the last data point we got, which was late uh, in um, late in January uh, or early February. And so um, the banking system obviously is the oxygen uh, of, uh, of the economy, particularly for small businesses. Um, right. I, I, there are for larger businesses can rely on non-bank banks. They can rely on private equity or venture capital or other sources of funds. But for capital most markets, the capital markets, most, you know, most small firms, most small companies are highly dependent upon uh, upon bank loans. And uh, to the extent to which banks are unwilling to make loans or, or find it difficult, that puts a lot of strain on small businesses, which which are generally speaking, um, uh, very much responsible for a lot of the hiring that happens in the economy. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. One of the reasons the U.S. economy is so dynamic for people who don't think a lot about the banking sector, we've got some 4,000 banks here in the United States. If we compare it, for example, with Canada, who is a very small number uh, of highly concentrated large banks, it's a different economy. One of the things that gives the U.S. economy its dynamism is its small, medium-sized, and regional banks. Uh, and if that were to go under threat for whatever reason, it could pose a serious risk to the economy moving forward. Amen. I mean, I, you know, I feel very strongly, I mean, this is my chosen profession, you know, financial markets, banking, that type of thing. But uh, so, but by the same token, I feel very, very strongly that the, one of the reasons why uh, the American economy became the American economy is because of the depth of its capital markets and the depth of it, depths of its banking system. Uh, and the banking system is very local. Uh, which can, um, in, a, in an economy as large as the United States, can can be as as um, uh, really as variegated and, and differentiated among regions. It's very important to have local banks, in my opinion. So this is, you know, this isn't something to trifle with. I'm sure the Fed is looking at the developments very, very closely. Whether it will be enough to prevent them from tightening next week, uh, we don't know yet. Uh, they may not know yet, depending on how this shakes out. But it is, uh, it is something, there's no question in my mind that, that the Fed is taking very seriously. Yeah, John Williams, the president of the New York Federal Reserve Bank, uh, said, said in a statement uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but essentially one more rate hike probably is about right. And as you point out, this may be very much in question if there's the perception of a tightening in financial conditions. It, it's, and Ash, you mentioned this before. I mean, it, it's, it's difficult because a lot of the other things that you would look at that maybe are not just up to the minute, like the stock price of the regional banks, are suggesting the economy is quite resilient, right? And, and particularly the labor market, which is something that the Fed pays, I think, a lot of uh, attention to, more attention to the labor market maybe than, than other economic statistics. And it, it's it's hard to really claim that um, the Fed should should ease uh, if the unemployment rate's three and a half percent, right? I mean, right. If, you, if you're at full employment, it's hard to make a strong case, uh, it seems to me. Uh, but financial stability is, is not part of their mandate uh, officially, but it is clearly something that's that's on their uh, that's on their minds. Uh, I'm expecting them to tighten uh, next week, unless uh, unless this really falls apart. 
Uh, but it also wouldn't surprise me if they, uh, if they took a pause after that to see um, how their policies are impacting uh, the economy because monetary policy obviously acts with a lag and the lags tend to be, as they say, long and variable. So, you, you know, you don't quite know how what you did even three months ago is going to impact the economy six months or a year from now. Well, you know, it gets into something uh, that uh, you wrote in the note. In fact, the, the quote that I thought was so profound about this idea that we are truly through the looking glass now uh, because of extraordinary intervention with unconventional monetary policy and massive fiscal policy. So you get to this point where, as you suggested, a three and a half percent unemployment rate is not the typical environment in which you'd expect the Fed to start cutting rates. However, however, some of these historical correlations have broken down and you wonder whether or not there are risks in the economy in either direction, frankly, that are not traditionally correlated as we have seen them uh, under their historical precedents. It, it's a great point. And I think this is one of the, uh, not to pile on the Fed here, the Fed's doing the best it can, but you know, we, we've described their monetary policy. It's a little bit uh, like uh, the Hotel California, you know, the old Eagles tune, which is, uh, if you remember the line, you can check out anytime you want, but you can never leave. And here, the Fed, with the assets on the Fed's balance sheet at, at uh, eight and a half trillion dollars, it's very hard for them to exit all of this extraordinary monetary stimulus that they have created without something breaking. And and so and no one really wants to have the pain, and yet you you have to fight inflation, and so it puts the financial markets, puts the economy in a in a more precarious position um, than it might ordinarily ha have been in. And so I had no problem with the first round of quantitative easing, uh, but um, you know, once you started to get into QE two and three and four, and uh, you know, it, it's it, again very, very hard to extricate yourself from this uh, elegantly. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned this term until something breaks. That's something that we in the space uh, talk about. It's a bit of jargon people bandy it about back and forth. And and then when you see uh, a failure, essentially of three banks: uh, Silvergate, Silicon Valley Bank, and Signature. Uh, all sounding uh, disturbingly alike to the lay, lay <laughs> public's ear. Uh, but when you see these problems uh, arising simultaneously and you send, someone says, well, this is what we mean by something breaking. And obviously that's why folks are watching uh, a whole series of regional banks in the market right now to see if there's going to be continued breakage. Yeah. And, and, and the banking system, I think, is obviously, uh, as I said, it's like the circulatory system for the economy. It's sufficiently large so that it's it's it, it if it does become systemic, it's it's very very serious. There have been other things that have broken uh, that were speculative. Let's say like the SPAC market or crypto or so on, and they broke. But um, it obviously wasn't systemic. wasn't something that that really threatened the system itself. Um, I would say this is has the potential, obviously, to be much more uh, serious. Um, I do think there are characteristics of these banks that make them unlike most other banks, just the extent to which they, they tend to focus on, uh, on very large depositors, very wealthy depositors, um, their, their um, deposit base may not be as, um, as variable as other, um, or as, uh, you know, as other banks. Uh, and by the way, but, for those who may not know, the reason that that's important is because if you have a large percentage of high uh, net worth depositors with large accounts, it puts a larger percentage of your deposits over the FDIC uh, insurance limit. And so you have uh, essentially this potential for people to be exposed. And that's one of the reasons why you see this risk and potential deposit flights. Uh, that's, that's, that's right. And then, you know, once you start, it, it, be, it can become, as we've seen with Silicon Valley Bank, a vicious circle 
where you have uh, held maturity securities, which you don't necessarily have to uh, acknowledge losses on because you're going to hold them to maturity until you might have to sell them uh, to meet the depositors' uh, uh, requests for their money back. Uh, and then they become capital, and then it becomes a whole other uh, issue. Right. Then, then they get marked, for people who may not understand the cycle, then they get marked to market, meaning uh, you look at the current prevailing rates at which they're trading when you have interest rates rising very dramatically, it dramatically pushes down the values of the securities on the asset side of the balance sheet. And what you wind up with is this asset liability mismatch that you essentially have to realize uh, in real time and you get this massive tilt as we've seen. That's exactly right. And I think, you know, a, a lot of this, again, not to not to pile on the Fed, but this is this is a little bit of the issue uh, again with the amount of meddling that we've we've done and the and the volatility that you've seen in the bond market, right? I mean, the bond market uh, shouldn't necessarily be as volatile as it's been uh, over the last couple of years. But when the Fed purchases five trillion dollars worth of securities in a year um, and then tries to stop, uh, it's it's it it stands to reason. That something might break or that you're going to have a lot more volatility and things that you normally thought were quite safe like treasury securities we're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the real vision daily briefing this episode is brought to you by la quinta by window your work can take you all over the place like texas you've never been but it's going to be great because you're staying at la quinta by window their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Yeah, and you know, one of the important points to mention here probably is also rate of change. When people look at rates, uh, you know, the federal funds rate at 475 uh, to 500 basis points right now, it sounds pretty middling. But when you think about the rate of change uh, at which that happened, pretty extraordinary. And you have essentially uh, this liability uh, asset mismatch happening on balance sheets. Talking about rate of change, another point uh, related to that, a point that our friend Jim Bianco made, uh, with me, I had a conversation with Jim this morning on Crypto Daily Briefing, but what's interesting is that the obviously there are these macro drivers on crypto uh, and uh, on the traditional financial side that are driving both sets of markets right now. And Jim made this point, which was, I believe he was speaking about Silicon Valley Bank. He said, look, this was a very rapid unwind. It took you know hours for this mass exodus of deposits. Uh, we had a very rapid unwind uh, in the 1980s of a bank and it took two weeks. The fact that people can just jump on their cell phones uh, and move funds yeah. essentially makes everything happen in hyperdrive. Absolutely, and I think this is not something I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of regulations, generally speaking. But this is probably something where maybe some speed bumps uh, it might it, it at least should be looked at. Uh, and obviously, if you have deposits, you, you want instantaneous access to your to your money. But as you know, there's no bank that could survive a run on its deposits. I mean, that banks, that's, that's the opposite of what banking is. It's not a warehouse for funds. It's a bank. Uh, and leverage is an inherent uh, risk and part of banking. Now, you can do it safely. Uh, but I also think uh, the, the modern banking system is not really designed for a company like Silicon Valley Bank to lose 40% of its deposits in four hours, right? I mean, that, that, there's no bank that, that could survive that. 
So I want to switch gears here a little bit and talk about something uh, that you speak about in your note, I think very eloquently, which is uh, the correlation between recession uh, and 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 market bottoms, particularly U.S. equity markets, S&P 500. You have a table in there that I think is really interesting and really instructive uh, that shows the time differential between the onset of recession and the bottoming in the S&P 500. Uh, and what you can see, obviously, there's some variability on that chart, but in some cases, it can be extremely long. Absolutely. And I think, you know, as the reason why I put this in here is that one of the questions I've received the most from our clients, institutional investors over the last couple of months is, um, gee, this is the most widely anticipated recession of all time. Why won't investors just look through it? Why, why, why do they have to sell it all? Why won't they just accept this as part of the natural business cycle? And, and why does there have to be a bear market that's worse than what we've already seen. And what I'm trying to tell people here with this chart is that, you know, it's very, once the bullets really start flying in a recession, um, stocks go down. Uh, so, you know, once you start to see people get laid off and profit, uh, profit expectations get cut, um, you, you're going to, uh, the market's likely gonna go down and it's, it's, it sounds easy in theory to look through it to the other side, but in practice, I think it's it's very very difficult. And again, you can drive a truck through these these numbers, and and you never really know when the recession starts until well after the fact, uh, based on the National Bureau of Economic Research. But I would argue the recession has not really started yet in earnest, uh, mainly because the employment markets are so tight. Which means that I still think there's risk in the equity market. I, I there's a lot of my clients that believe that the bottom we saw last October is the bottom. I hope they're correct, uh, frankly, but I, uh, if you're expecting a recession as I am, I would say that the, the odds do not favor that. The odds would favor that we're gonna retest those lows at some point this year. Jason, talking of recession watch, you have another great chart in uh, your sheet. Uh, this is the note that came out uh, from Strategus about the uh, New York Fed probability of recession in 12 months ahead predicted by treasury spreads. I believe this is three months minus 10-year US T-spread. Uh, if we could bring that up on the screen and if you could talk through it, uh, you can see the gray bars there represent recession and I'll let you talk about the indicator. Yeah, no, this is, listen, yield curve is, um, it, it's not uh, it's not perfect. Uh, two years, 10s is not perfect. Three months, 10 years actually, I believe is perfect uh, in, in, um, in forecasting recessions. And right now the spread between uh, the three month bill and the 10 year note is wider than it's been at any time since uh, 1981. And so, and you can see here with those gray bars, anytime it spikes, you get a recession. Uh, and so this is uh, um, something I, I believe investors should take seriously. Um, I, I don't think this is just a one-off. I think uh, you've had an inverted yield curve here for quite some time. Uh, and right now, again, I, you have the bond market and the stock market essentially telling you two different things about the likelihood of recession. And um, in my opinion, uh, right now, the bond market is um, is probably, is, I believe, is going to be more accurate uh, in the end. Yeah, bond markets traditionally have a better track record than stock markets in protecting uh forward recessions. It's also interesting, I'm just kind of eyeballing this chart, but it seems like it's around 30 basis points uh, where you start to see the, the correlation essentially go to one and we're at double that. Yeah, right. So this is, you know, there, again, this is something you haven't seen since 1981. 
um, and you you remember in that in that era, in and around that era, um, that was a period of time when uh, inflation, I believe, peaked at uh, about 15. Uh, Fed funds rate peaked at 20 to 21, something along those lines. So you were dealing with a much you're dealing with a, a much wider scale too, you know, much bigger scale um, to have that kind of inversion. So uh, this is this is again something that I think investors should take seriously because it's telling you that investors are very very worried. Uh, it's telling you that their investors in bonds are very worried about the possibility of a recession. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Jason, we have a lot of great questions coming in for our audience. I would love to hit some of these if you're game. Sure. Fantastic. The first one comes to us from Oliver M. from the Real Vision website. Uh, Oliver, boy, this is a cynical question. Are these considered zombie banks or are they totally dead now? Wow. I, you know, I wouldn't go so far. I, I, I'm not even sure I would, I would describe them as uh, I, the banks that we're talking about um, are at a minimum zombie banks. Um, and um, it might be dead. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, I think again, the the banking system in uh, the U.S. Um, is very diverse, and so which don't necessarily have the same sorts of um, uh, profiles in terms of their depositors and uh, and the people to whom they're lending. So I'm not quite sure as so sure it's as systemic. Uh, but these banks uh, are going to uh, if. Uh, if they're not already in receivership, they're they're clearly going to have to have some help from someone uh, if they're going to survive. Here's one that comes from Edward Sanders in the Real Vision website. I don't know if this is something you follow, Jason, but uh, Edward is interested in your take on what the home builders are signaling. I I don't have a strong I, I don't have a strong opinion there. I think you know there there is a certain amount of um, there's a certain amount of cash that's still left in the system. There's still a fair amount of savings. Um, and there is, I would argue, there's uh, a housing shortage in a lot of parts um, of the country. And so you have a strange situation here where you have these, these types of troubles in the banking system, which we spent a lot of time talking about. And yet there are other parts of the economy that seem to be doing okay uh, and can withstand somewhat higher interest rates to people who have been looking for opportunities to buy a, a home uh, and have cash. And so, I, you know, I, I think the good news is that um, it, it, the home building sector largely, I think, is consistent with the fact that you're close to full employment. Um, the, you know, the, the question I would ask if, is, you know, how sustainable is that if the employment market starts, uh, starts to weaken? But I, I would say that's one of, been one of the brighter spots uh, in, in the U.S. economy, and I think it's partly because um, the affordability of homes got to be so out of whack that to the extent to which they're becoming somewhat more affordable, there are people with cash that are willing to buy them. Here's a question from Golden Taurus Finance from YouTube. 
Will the Fed step in for small banks or will they let some of them go under? This is really a great question, particularly since we saw uh, the Fed, uh, Treasury and FDIC backstop Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, the idea being that the, there was fear of systemic risk. Do you think that if the event of another insolvency, the Fed uh, and uh, FDIC and, and Treasury will step in? It's a great question. Uh, and I, I have to say too, and this is my hope, um, because we, we've had the, we've, we've wondered aloud here in our shop it, when Silicon Valley Bank failed. So, you know, listen, if this were a bank in East Palestine, Ohio, right. would, would it have been treated the same way uh, as Silicon Valley Bank? And um, our general consensus in our shop, this may be overly cynical, is that the answer is probably not. Uh, at least it's very unlikely depositors would know that they were not going to get haircuts uh, three days after it failed, you know, over a weekend. Um, I, I, there's almost no question in my mind uh, that, uh, that less well-heeled depositors would have had to sweat it out uh, a little bit. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that my own preference, and no one likes to see anyone go out of business, no one wants to see anyone fail, but I feel very strongly that um, free markets are the best allocators of capital and and with free markets comes the possibility of failure and um, because if you don't let people fail you'll never I mean, you talk about hotel california situation the fed will never be able uh, to normalize monetary policy uh, and so again it's very unfortunate uh, no one likes to see it happen but it's it's very difficult to have a free market economy without failure yeah and also you have this risk of essentially uh, what happens when you totally stop forest fires, right? You don't have the ability to burn out some of the, the lower lying kindling. And what happens is you get this massive overgrowth. And then when something does blow up, it blows up at a massive, massive scale. Yeah, I love uh, I love that metaphor because I think that's exactly, I, I think that's precisely right. And in some ways you could say we're kind of close to that um, now. And then so many of the things that you've tried to accomplish after the global financial crisis, I would argue, one of them being trying to avoid too big to fail, um, anyways, right, that's gotten worse, right? You have, you have a certain number of banks that are too bigger to fail, right? Uh, we're hoovering up all the deposits and then it's becoming, as you mentioned before, uh, a little less American to the extent to which, uh, certainly in Europe or Canada, you, those, those banking systems tend to be dominated by a relatively small number of banks. Uh, and so it, which makes the system somewhat less dynamic, uh, I would, uh, I would argue. So, um, it's unfortunate we're here, but, but, uh, this may be just what we need to get through, uh, to progress. And, and then you wind up in this sort of paradoxical situation where you get a failure like Silicon Valley bank and you get a joint statement from the fed FDIC and treasury, uh, essentially backstopping them because what happens if you don't, I mean, it means everyone who has a banking relationship, uh, with one of the GSIBs, the global systemically important banks picks up the phone on Monday morning and moves all of their assets there. I mean, that is this, this weird sort of paradoxical environment of unintended consequences that we seem to have created. Amen. And it's, um, and again, you know, it's, and, and I'm glad I'm not in the Fed shoes because to be honest with you, there are no good answers here. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a question of which answer is less bad. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to, um, notwithstanding my kind of open-ended question about East Palestine and East Palestine bank versus Silicon Valley, 
Um, I'm going to trust them to do the right thing and what they think is the best, the best thing. But I, I would argue strenuously that where they can, um, they allow the markets to work properly. Right. Um, and um, unfortunately, we're at a point now where we're probably where it's going to be very difficult to get out of this without some pain. And, and that's just, again, part of part and parcel uh, of uh, the system, the economic system that we have. By the way, when you mentioned that East Ohio banking hypothetical example, if there's one of the few things uh, that folks on the left and folks on the right in America agree on right now, it's annoyance about that fact. And I'm sure that that was something that the administration was thinking about. Uh, bailing out a bank called Silicon Valley Bank is very bad optics, very bad politics on both sides. Absolutely. You know, and I think, listen, Ash, I think um, my own view, not to get into the politics too much, but I, I do think populism is an enduring theme. Uh, and the, the question largely is, is the populism going to come from the left of center or right of center? So we, you know, Donald Trump was right of center. And I would say President Biden is, is left of center. Uh, but your, um, your traditional kind of Rotary Club types of candidates, in my opinion, are unlikely to win in these types of environments because there is a certain anger uh, that despite the fact the unemployment rate is three and a half percent, there is a certain anger and a certain distrust in institutions uh, that uh, people are getting a fair shake. And, and so, um, so some of that is fair, some of that may be unfair, but that is the truth. And, and um, that's one of the things that um, I, I think that the regulators are gonna have to struggle with as well as the optics of what they're doing. Unfortunately, the answer to the question, is populism going to come from the left or the right? Maybe. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes, I, 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 I very much believe that. And, um, and, and again, if the, if it look, it looks like if the, the election were held tomorrow, it looks like it would be a rematch of 2020. Now, Lord only knows that's a long, that's a long way away from now. Um, uh, and who knows who the candidates will be. Right. But I would, I would argue, I would argue or bet pretty, pretty heavily uh, on it being people that are, um, very much focused on the middle class and their needs uh, as opposed to, uh, I would say, more well-heeled people who have, I would say have inordinately benefited from quantitative easing and these extraordinary monetary policies. Um, it wasn't the intent, but there is no question in my mind that they've been very regressive, that, that they've helped wealthy people disproportionately um, versus the average person that might just have a savings account who until recently got zero. Um, yeah. So um, that's, again, going to be part of the Fed's calculus. And I'm sure the Fed does not want to be a political issue in 2024. Um, we'll see whether they can avoid avoid that. But it, it's the way it's looking now is it wouldn't surprise me if it was a very big political issue in, in uh, next year's presidential election. Yeah, and by the way, if it is a rematch, can Americans not come up with political candidates under like 77 years old? <laughs> well, you know, my friend Lee Cooperman, uh, you know, mentioned, he talked about the founding fathers and he said, I think the statistics were at that point, uh, America had three and a half million people and it came up with the likes of uh, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin. And, you know, here we are, we have 330 million people and you know, our choices don't seem to be quite as, uh, quite as appealing. So, um, yeah. it does make you wonder. Uh, so, um, but, uh, I have faith in the system. I think eventually we'll, we'll get to the right answer. 
Jason, I wanted to throw out this final story here. I don't know if this is one that you saw uh, last night coming out of the UK. Uh, a gentleman named Hugh Pill, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. This is the chief economist at the Bank of England, uh, had this to say, and it raised some eyebrows. I'm just going to read this quote for you. If the cost of what you're buying has gone up compared to what you're selling, you're going to be worse off. So somehow in the UK, someone needs to accept that we're worse off and stop trying to maintain their real spending power by bidding up prices, whether higher wages, uh, passing the energy costs through onto consumers. And what we're facing now is the reluctance to accept that, yes, we're all worse off and we all have to take our share. So essentially, an unelected bureaucrat in the United Kingdom uh, telling citizens, you know, it's going to get worse and just take your share. Yeah, I mean, again, I I um, I hate that. Uh, you know, I I, I again because I'm a free market person, I would prefer. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to RealVision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 